Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Iris today. This is the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, December 13th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's take a look at today's weather forecast, this coming from KCRG. There are no signs of a big wintry chill to move into eastern Iowa anytime soon, with a warm-up continuing into the end of the work and school week. That warm-up begins today, despite a decent amount of cloud cover to start the day. That patch of clouds eventually moves out of the area, giving us a bit more sunshine, especially in the afternoon. Highs today reach the upper 30s to low 40s. A light southerly wind will help with that warm-up, but should remain light enough that wind chills won't be a huge factor for the next couple of days. Clear skies tonight allow for a cool start to Thursday, with lows in the upper 10s to low 20s. Lots of sunshine and the same southerly flow as today give us an even warmer finish by the afternoon, with temperatures reaching the upper 40s to around 50. Conditions will be similar on Friday, though clouds will increase again ahead of a storm system that arrives for the start of the weekend. The storm gives us our lone chance for precipitation out of the next several days, coming in the form of a shower chance on Friday night into Saturday. The latest trends based on the newest data suggest that showers may linger a little longer into Saturday. If you have plans, just incorporate the chance for a little chilly rain into them as a possibility. Highs reach the 40s. Get used to more days in the 40s for most of us, as the entire nine-day forecast keeps us in that temperature range for highs. After the early weekend rain chance, we'll see several more dry days into the middle of the following week. Lows will be in the 20s generally during this time, making for a set of reasonably comfortable December days. Looking at the front page of The Courier today, we have two articles of local interest. Iowa's first transgender elected official seeks statehouse seat, story written by Tom Barton of The Courier's Des Moines Bureau. Iowa's first transgender elected official hopes to become Iowa's first transgender state lawmaker. Hiawatha City Council member Amy Wichtendahl, a Democrat, announced Monday she's running for Iowa House District 80. The district covers Hiawatha, Robbins, and part of Cedar Rapids. State Representative Art Stade, a Democrat from Cedar Rapids, currently represents the district, but intends to run for the Iowa Senate seat, being vacated by Democratic incumbent Todd Taylor. The House district leans Democratic. Biden won the district in 2020 with roughly 55% of the vote. Stade won re-election with about 54% of the vote over Republican Barrett Hubbard in 2022. Wichtendahl, who in 2015 became the first transgender Iowan elected to public office, has advocated against state legislation that would affect transgender youth. She was re-elected to the Hiawatha City Council for a third term in November. She said sweeping new laws passed this year by Republican lawmakers and signed into law by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds that place restrictions on LGBTQ students, school materials, and access to abortion, 
and create new taxpayer-funded private school scholarships prompted her to run for the Iowa House seat. Quote, We have a government that wants your vote, but not your opinion, Wichtendahl said. Quote, That, you know, routinely does things that Iowans don't agree with, unquote. She pointed to the state and national polling, suggesting widespread disapproval of banning books, restricting abortion access, and using taxpayer money to pay for private schools. However, majorities of the Iowans support Republican legislation to restrict instruction on LGBTQ topics in schools and ban gender-affirming care for transgender minors, according to a March Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll. Quote, I think something is fundamentally broken in Des Moines, and it's going to require new leadership to change, unquote. Granted, that's going to be a long, hard road, but it's one that has to happen. If we are truly to have a government that works for its citizens, instead of pushing people they don't like to the borders, unquote. If elected, Wichtendahl said she would push to raise the minimum wage, expand access to affordable housing, use the state's budget surplus to create tax credits for child care, and reverse state laws passed this year that place restrictions on LGBTQ students, ban nearly all abortions in the state, and provide taxpayer-funded private school scholarships. Wechtendahl said she also supports legalizing recreational marijuana for adult use, expanding the state's medical cannabis system, and enabling voters to place statewide referendums on the ballot. Quote, I truly think we need to live by the values written on our state flag. Our liberties we prize, and your rights we will maintain, she said. And the simple fact is, LGBTQ kids have fundamental rights that are being abused by this government, unquote. Supporters argue the measures assert parents' rights to control and guide their child's education and protect children from medical care and treatments when the science is not settled, even though all major medical groups in the United States say the treatments are safe and the vast majority of studies show that the care leads to better mental health outcomes. Republicans are also running Cedar Rapids veteran John Thompson, a Republican, filed paperwork in October with the Iowa Ethics and Campaign Disclosure Board of his intentions to run for the seat. Thompson serves as president of Salute to the Fallen, a nonprofit he created to help veterans and first responders and their families with mental health issues, homelessness, and more. He also is a member of the Carpenters Union Local 308. Thompson said he enlisted in the U.S. Army in 2007 and was discharged in 2012 due to injuries. He said he served as an infantryman and deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. He moved to Cedar Rapids eight years ago from Texas and founded Salute to the Fallen in 2019. Thompson said he's running for the Iowa House to better help and be a louder voice for veterans, first responders, and small businesses, and improve Iowa's mental health care system. Thomas said he also is opposed to recommendations from a state panel to cut or consolidate more than 100 administrative boards and commissions as part of a state government reorganization plan 
signed into law earlier this year. The recommendations would need to be approved by the Republican-controlled Iowa legislature in next year's session and signed into law by Governor Kim Reynolds before they take effect. Former GOP state lawmaker running again as a Democrat. Story written by Tom Barton of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. A former longtime Republican state lawmaker who made national headlines for switching parties in a rebuke of then-President Donald Trump is running again as a Democrat for a seat in the Iowa legislature. Former Iowa Representative Andy McKean of Anamosa announced his candidacy Tuesday for the Iowa House seat currently held by Representative Steve Bradley, Republican from Cascade, in the November 2024 election. Bradley is in the middle of his second term, having won the seat from McKean in 2020. In 2019, McKean was the longest-serving Republican in the Iowa legislature when he switched to the Democratic Party. McKean said the move largely stemmed from his philosophical differences with the policies and actions of then-President Donald Trump and a party he believed, quote, has veered very sharply to the right, unquote. In an op-ed, McKean wrote that he believed Trump's actions, quote, have coarsened political discourse, have resulted in unprecedented divisiveness, and have created an atmosphere that is a breeding ground for hateful rhetoric and actions, unquote. McKean said the concerns he expressed in 2019 remain, and is running with the hope of uniting Iowans under a common cause to better the state and restore the bipartisan consensus-building approach to solving problems that once defined Iowa, unquote. Quote, I think most Iowans really want to end the cycle of swinging from one extreme to the other and are tired of extremism and excessive partisanship, McKean told the Courier-Des Moines Bureau. Quote, and I think it's time for a new kind of leadership at the State House that is open to responsive compromise to the controversial issues of the day that would enjoy the support of a majority of Iowans and help bring people together instead of setting them apart, unquote. McKean served 24 years in the House and Senate and was first elected in 1978. He was the Senate Judiciary Committee chairman and president pro tempore when he left in 2002. He went on to serve on the Jones County Board of Supervisors. After retiring from a 35-year law practice, he ran for and was elected to the Iowa House in 2016. He was re-elected in 2018 before being ousted by Bradley in 2020. He played a key role in passing nonpartisan redistricting legislation and created the State Resource Enhancement and Protection Program for Iowa's Natural Resources. He also helped develop and pass sentencing reform legislation, championed Iowa's first elder abuse initiatives, and led passage of legislation toughening penalties for drunken driving in the state. If elected, McKean said he would focus on prioritizing rural revitalization and restoring local control and decision-making authorities for cities, counties, and other institutions stripped away by Republican majorities. 
McKean said he would also focus on providing greater access to mental health services and affordable child care, continued sentencing reform, the promotion of ethanol, and improving educational quality. Bradley, a dentist from Cascade, said he welcomes McKean as a challenger. Quote, let him run. Free country, Bradley told the Courier-Des Moines Bureau. Quote, we'll let the voters decide. They decided once. They can decide again. This will be the third time. They see my track record, and they see I stick with them. I'm a Republican, and I stay a Republican. I'm conservative, unquote. Iowa District 66 includes Jones County and the majority of Jackson County, excluding McQuoquita and southwestern corner of the county. Quote, many of those voters have already learned the hard way not to trust Andy McKean when he switched his party affiliation less than five months after being elected as a Republican, unquote. House Majority Fund Executive Director Regan Bueller said in a statement, quote, since voters rejected McKean in 2020, they have come to know Stephen Bradley as a strong, consistent representative that will fight to protect their freedom, values, and economic interests in the Iowa House. McKean said he remains the same person I've always been, with the same priorities, unquote. Quote, I believe my priorities will align with the vast majority of Democrats and many independents and Republicans as well, he said. To the last point, McKean said he feels the Iowa GOP is, quote, no longer the Republican Party I knew. It's become the MAGA Party, unquote. He said many traditional conservatives feel the same. Quote, I think people will find a significant difference between my independent approach and my opponent's extreme, hyperpartisan views and record, McKean said. Over my years in the legislature, as both a Republican and now a Democrat, I've resisted partisan pressure and steered an independent course for the good of Iowa and the people and communities of my district. In contrast, my opponent toes the line set by his party leaders and special interests. Unquote. Volunteers rally to create community space for veterans in Waterloo. Story written by Maria Cooper, Dateline Waterloo. Dozens of volunteers descended upon an empty University Avenue building Wednesday to paint walls, unpack furniture, and clean the space, all dressed in sky-blue Lowe's t-shirts. The former Slumberland at 4020 University Avenue will soon be the new headquarters for Americans for Independent Living, after the Home Improvement Store provided $85,000 to the Waterloo nonprofit that assists veterans. And here we have a photograph of the workers in their blue t-shirts, and we see a Christmas tree in the background and a large counter with plywood for a countertop. And the caption to the photograph says, Volunteers and Lowe's employees help to renovate the community room at Americans for Independent Living's new headquarters in the former Slumberland building on University Avenue. AFIL, or AFIL for Americans for Independent Living, received the money through the Lowe's Hometowns Program, which is investing $100 million to complete 100 community-based projects 
each year through 2026. The grant helped turn part of the former furniture store into a community room where veterans can relax, talk with friends, and participate in activities such as cooking classes or playing pool. Volunteers come from AFIL, Lowe's, and Cedar Falls Lions Clubs. Before they started working, AFIL Executive Director Tim Combs gave a brief speech. He could not get through it without tearing up. Combs founded AFIL in 2015 to do more for the veterans community. The organization provides transitional housing for homeless veterans at 414 and 420 East 19th Street. One house holds three men and the other a veteran's family of four. For veterans who own or rent their homes, the organization helps those with disabilities complete home modifications and also provides furniture and furnishings. Quote, imagine being homeless and then being given an opportunity to get into housing, only to realize that Although you have a roof and walls, you still don't have the basic dignity of a bed or a sofa or even some dishes, AFIL's website states. From the start of the furniture program, $320,000 worth of items have been delivered to previously homeless veterans. Corey Champagne, a U.S. Navy veteran who served from 1977 to 1992, was the first graduate of the transitional housing program. He lived in the house in 2017 and secured his own apartment in 2018. During that time, he was hired at Lowe's. Quote, the whole idea is to give that person a year and really build them up, Champagne said. The intent is to, quote, really try to get them a job, a place to live, and basically put them on their feet. He started in the flooring department and moved onto doors and windows. He is now retired, but keeps busy volunteering with the American Legion. Champagne lives off Social Security and a Veterans Affairs pension. Quote, I make less money, but the satisfaction is twofold, he said. Champagne learned about the Lowe's grant and, with his personal success with AFIL, went to the store's manager, Rod Mokel, to help him put in an application to help the nonprofit. Quote, I guess we were kind of expecting three or $4,000, Mokel said. Lowe's was a little more generous than that. But the $85,000 for the community room isn't the only money AFIL has received to further its efforts. The organization was awarded $1 million by the Iowa Economic Development Authority in 2022 to acquire the old Slumberland building and make renovations. The 30,000-square-foot facility will increase space for additional programs and donations. Its current office on 4th Street is 8,000 square feet. In 2016, while former President Donald Trump was campaigning ahead of the election, he held a rally at the Waterloo Convention Center. During the event, he presented AFIL with a $100,000 check from his foundation. Quote, Trump got out of the car and actually he pulled the check out and he carried it right up and handed it to his guys and they held it and he did the signature right there in front of us, Combs said. Then we went on stage and he gave it to us in front of the national media that was there that morning, unquote. Champagne said the donation from the future president 
made him feel like AFIL was a legitimate organization. Teresha Jaden, the director of operations for AFIL, said the organization has a capital campaign for the new space with a goal of $1.75 million. With the money from the state, Lowe's and Trump, the end is in sight. Quote, I didn't think this would happen for many years, Combs said, choking up. This opportunity is just, it's awesome to see that money come through, for being able to purchase the building and remodel it to make it our complete spot of operation, unquote. The renovations are expected to be finished in May. One unplanned advantage of the location is that it is within walking distance of the new Veterans Affair outpatient clinic at the former Hy-Vee at 4000 University Avenue. The clinic offers primary care, mental health care, physical therapy, audiology, a pharmacist, and a dietitian, as well as a radiology lab, women's treatment center, telehealth, and other social services. Optometry will be offered in the near future. Nearly 5,000 veterans in northeast Iowa will soon be steps away from a space providing support and camaraderie. This serendipitous outcome confirms Champagne's way of thinking. Quote, you don't have to know how to do everything, he said. You just need to know who the people are to hold it together, unquote. Canadian National to Acquire Iowa Northern Railway for Expansion, Dateline Waterloo. Canadian National is buying a small Waterloo-based railroad in Iowa to expand its network in the United States. CN announced the agreement to buy Iowa Northern Railroad on Wednesday, but didn't disclose financial terms. The U.S. Surface Transportation Board must approve the transaction next year before it can be completed. Iowa Northern has about 275 miles of track serving a mix of agricultural and industrial shippers in the state. Iowa Northern Chairman Daniel Sabin said he believes CN will maintain his railway's commitment to providing reliable service while helping connect shippers with bigger markets. CN CEO Tracy Robinson said the deal should strengthen the Montreal-based railroad. CN is already one of North America's six biggest railroads with more than 18,000 miles of track across Canada and the United States. Quote, by enabling all of us to play an even more important role in the critical supply chain and densifying our southern network, we are accelerating sustainable, profitable growth, unquote. Robinson said. Iowa Northern Railway Company was founded in 1984 on a section of the old Chicago, Rock Island, and Pacific Railroad Company. The line runs diagonally northwest to southeast from Manly to Cedar Rapids, with a branch line from Waterloo to Olwine and a branch for line from Forest City to Belmond. New York Times responds to Iowa Attorney General's allegations. Dateline Des Moines. The New York Times responded to a letter from Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrds questioning whether freelance journalists who worked with the organization had ties to Hamas. In a letter on Wednesday, the Times Director of Communications, Charlie Stadlander, 
called the claims inflammatory allegations based on false assumptions and debunked social media posts, unquote. On Monday, Byrd and 13 other attorneys general sent a letter to the Times, Associated Press, Reuters, and CNN, arguing the news organizations may have provided, quote, material support to terrorists by paying for photographs from journalists that had been alleged to have ties to Hamas. The attorneys general cited a report from Honest Reporting, a pro-Israel media watchdog, which questioned whether freelance photojournalists for the organization had advanced knowledge of the October 7th attack on Israel. Quote, You should ensure that you are taking all necessary steps to prevent your organizations from contracting with members of terror organizations, Bird wrote in the letter. The Times has denied it had any knowledge of the October 7th attack. Stadlander reiterated in the letter that, quote, the only connection New York Times has to Hamas is that we report on the organization fearlessly and at times at great risk, unquote. He pointed to later statements from Honest Reporting, which said it did not have evidence that any journalist was embedded with Hamas and was satisfied with the explanations from the media outlets. Quote, I realize that the purveyors of disinformation online have widely and recklessly spread the lies of embedded journalists, Statlander wrote. Quote, but it does real harm when public officials embrace such falsehoods and give them credibility, unquote. Iowa Youth Straw Poll. Iowa Secretary of State Paul Pate announced Thursday the annual Iowa Youth Straw Poll will be held on January 9, 2024. The Iowa Youth Straw Poll invites Iowa school students to learn about the civic process by participating in a mock election or caucus. This year, straw poll participants will cast their vote for candidates for U.S. President. Quote, Programs like the Iowa Youth Straw Poll not only give these students an opportunity to make their voices heard, but they get a first-hand understanding of how elections work, so they are better prepared to vote in elections once they are eligible, Pate said in a press release. The straw poll is part of the Election 101 curriculum provided by Pate's office for schools to use. Dozens of Iowa schools have already signed up to participate in the straw poll, according to Pate's office. Pate's office will live stream the results of the straw poll on January 9th. <laughs> Proposal for private Christian school in Waverly rejected by board. Story written by Maria Cooper. Dateline Waverly. A plan for a new Christian school to occupy a soon-to-be-vacant elementary building was short-lived as the Waverly Shell Rock Board of Education on Monday unanimously rejected the idea. The $70,000 bid proposals from Inspired Life were to purchase either West Cedar or Margareta Carey Elementary Schools in Waverly. Two other proposals for West Cedar, a $5,000 bid from Matt Hibbard to turn the school into a community arts center, and a $5,000 bid from Waverly Municipal Housing Committee to create 10 to 15 apartments within the building, 
were tabled for further discussion. Inspired Life describes itself as, quote, an organization working to help men and women, marriages, parents, children, leaders, educators, givers, and business owners live truly God-inspired lives, unquote. The bid was submitted by Tim Betger, Inspired Life's executive director, and Ryan Hall, the head of Waterloo Christian School. Betger, who started Inspired Life in 2020, is director of spiritual care at Western Home Communities in Cedar Falls. The organization's first building choice was Cary, but it submitted a proposal to buy West Cedar if the Cary bid were rejected. Each offer was for $70,000. The proposed Waverly Christian School would partner with Waterloo Christian School. A letter to the school board proposed a school for children in kindergarten to eighth grade, aiming for 100 students during its first year. The enrollment cap was listed as 200. It would include a preschool for 30 children. Almost immediately, after reading the motion to consider the bids for the private school, board member Jen Kettleson motioned to reject it. Newly elected board member Sean Ellerbrook seconded, quote, every school dollar now with the new, quote-unquote, educational savings accounts goes away from the public school, and we are a public school, Kettleson said, quote, but we need to protect the school that we are a part of. And now, listeners, at this time, we'd just like to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, December 13th, on IRIS, I-R-I-S, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and the Print Handicapped. Now, this word. It only took Jeff one interview to land his job, one smile to get his wife to go out with him, and one time to risk it all by trying math. Math. Never, ever. Visit YourLifeIowa.org, brought to you by the Iowa Department of Public Health. And now let's read the opinion section. Our first editorial today comes from the Storm Lake Times pilot. The title is Fob Foibles, Plague We of the Tech-Challenged Persuasion. This was written by Dick Hayes of the Iowa City Press Citizen. And it begins with a photograph showing Vernon Rollins of North Liberty, a familiar friendly face at the Coralville Costco, as he displays the columnist's key fob, which resulted in a recent clogged line at the store's gas pumps. I love my 2014 Camry because it is uncomplicated and starts with a mechanical key. My wife's newer Fusion starts with an electronic key fob. The problem with the Fusion is, if you drop your wife off at Kohl's and drive to Costco for gas while she shops, you don't want the only fob to the car to be in her purse at Kohl's when you shut off your car to fill up in the busy Costco gas line. Because, duh, you can't restart the car without the fob. So, here I am at the Costco pumps, agonizing for clogging up a long line of frustrated drivers waiting behind me, blatantly advertising my incompetence to the world, while cordial attendant Vernon agrees to drive over and pick up my wife at Kohl's and retrieve the fob. 
Bless you, Vernon. But alas, my retired undertaker buddy, Greg Fratsky of Storm Lake, recently topped my fob disaster story with one of his own from the summer. Craig and his wife, Nancy, have a friend named Marty Strait, who drove to Storm Lake from her Texas home for a two-day visit with the Fratskys en route to her northern home in Michigan. Quote, She's one amazing 95-year-old ward warrior, said Craig. Marty is extremely energetic, sharp as a tack, and has no qualms loading her beloved rescue dog, Trip, into her 2019 GMC terrain for a 1,600-mile journey. Because he is obsessively Iowa nice, Craig got up early on the day Marty was to head back to Michigan, loaded a cooler with her favorite snacks and drinks and plenty of water for Trip, backed out her car, and fired up the A.C. It was one of our blistering Iowa heat dome days. When the Fratskys in pajamas hugged Marty goodbye and watched her drive off, sometime later, Craig discovered Marty's key fob in his pajama pocket. Quote, I am immediately in full-blown panic, he told me. He had visions of their dear 95-year-old friend stopping along the way and locked out of her car with her precious canine companion inside in the heat, both of them stranded. Did she have an extra fob in the car? No answer from Marty, because she always turns off her cell phone while driving. Craig drummed in his car like Batman to give chase. On the way, he contacted his son Darren, a retired Iowa State Patrol captain, who advised him to call the Buena Vista County Communications Center, which immediately issued a statewide bolo, beyond the lookout, on Marty. Craig said what followed might have passed for a Three Stooges movie. There he was, frantically racing through northwest Iowa on Highway 20, unkempt in his Iowa Hawkeye pajamas, with no billfold and now running out of gas near Fort Dodge, and getting refused at gas stations because he had no cash or credit card. Finally, a kindly Quickstar employee named Lewis pulled a $20 bill from his own wallet, stuffed it in the cash drawer, and arranged for $20 in gas on pump number one, where Craig was parked. Quote, I was overwhelmed with gratitude, Craig said. Back on the road, he stopped at the Iowa State Patrol District 7 office to check on the bolo and found about 30 people there learning about dispatching. According to Craig, they were treated to the sight of an old, half-deaf guy in pajamas frantically explaining this complicated fob story to the staff. Lieutenant Aaron Smith got involved, recognized Craig's last name, and pointed out that Craig's son, Darren, was his drill instructor when he was at the academy for trooper training. Quote, I wasn't sure if that were a bad thing or a good thing, Craig quipped. Turns out it was good. OnStar would help, Lieutenant Smith said. They needed Martin's VIN number, which Craig finally pinned down through the state farm. OnStar then tracked Marty to a truck stop, then a GMC dealership in Cedar Falls. The nearest state troopers personally checked both spots, but no Marty. The fiasco finally ended when OnStar was able to link a state patrol dispatcher directly through to Marty in her car through her radio. She was fine, of course, and did in fact have an extra key fob for her because, quote, I always pin it to the inside of my jeans pocket, 
when I travel, unquote. We said the woman was sharp. Next, from the Des Moines Register, Norman Lear made a film in Iowa, pushed for social change, and touched this Iowan's life. This was written by Julie Gamick. And here's a note about Julie Gamick. She is a former Des Moines Register columnist and business coach who lives in Des Moines with her husband, Richard Gilbert. Norman Lear was a guest in our family home on more than one occasion when he and his crew were filming Cold Turkey. It was 1970, and the film location was set in Greenfield. My dad was a columnist for the Des Moines Tribune and wrote about Lear, Dick Van Dyke, and others involved in the production. As a 20-year-old budding feminist, I recall being seated next to Lear on the pink-covered, overstuffed sofa in my parents' living room, where I challenged him on women's rights issues. Oh boy, do I wish I could remember what he said. I do recall the twinkle in his eye during our dialogue, or rather, my rant. A year later, 13 of us college kids took off in a school bus retrofitted by fellow student John Schuler, and we spent a month traveling the western United States, visiting people and organizations involved in social change. Miraculously, we earned college credit for the adventure. Our travels included meeting Cesar Chavez during the Lettuce Boycott and Big Sur's Ellislin Institute, and we visited communes in California. We also made a stop to visit Norman Lear in his Burbank office, where he spotted me $50, which my father repaid him. There we were, a gaggle of college students, plus my dog Krishna, a collie German Shepherd Beagle mix, talking with Norman Lear about social change. Lear was an American speechwriter and producer who wrote, created, or had a hand in over 100 shows, including groundbreaking and edgy All in the Family, Maud, Sanford and Son, One Day at a Time, and The Jeffersons. Lear kept in touch with several Iowans through the years. Author and poet Jim Autry served with him on the board of People for the American Way. Des Moines clothier Bill Reichardt and his wife Sue kept in touch with Lear. Reichardt had a small role in Cold Turkey. In the early 1980s, I had a weekly TV show on a local access cable television channel. I'd be surprised if the audience reached 100 viewers, but it was good practice. I had a horrible fear of public speaking and asked a television director for WHO-TV at the time to help me to combat my nervousness. His advice? When the red light of the camera comes on, just remind myself no one is watching. I knew Bill Reichardt's 50th birthday was coming up, so I invited him to come on my show and talk about his life. Unbeknownst to him, I reached out to Norman Lear and asked him to make an unannounced surprise appearance on the show. There we were, in the midst of our conversation about the clothing business in Des Moines, when I told Bill we had a little surprise for him for his birthday. Out strolled Norman Lear who had come to Des Moines to attend Reichardt's birthday party as a surprise. Oh, how I wish I had a tape of that show. Norman Lear died surrounded by family at the age of 101. What a legacy. What a giver. What a citizen. He touched millions of lives 
mine being just one. Next is an editorial written by Paul Krugman, which appeared in the New York Times, titled, Watch What People Do, Not What They Say About the Economy. Have you heard that there's a huge wave of organized shoplifting, coordinated theft by groups effectively looting stores, sweeping the United States? You probably have. A couple of years ago, Walgreens said that organized shoplifting was behind its decision to close several locations in San Francisco. In April, the National Retail Federation issued a dire report claiming that, quote, organized retail crime was responsible for almost half of the store merchandise that vanished in 2021. The putative shoplifting tsunami has been relentlessly hyped both by the usual suspects, such as Fox News, and by some politicians. But it never happened. My guess is that most readers didn't notice the Retail Federation's recent retraction of its April claims. Probably even fewer people noticed when the San Francisco Chronicle examined police records and found that they didn't support Walgreens' assertions. Quote, Maybe we cried too much, the company's chief financial officer told investors earlier this year. Data on shoplifting are flaky, depending a lot on retailers' own reports. Was there really a surge in New York City while shoplifting declined in the rest of the country? Maybe. What is clear is that the narrative of licentious mobs sweeping through America's stores wasn't a depiction of reality. It was basically conjured out of some dubious data and a handful of videos. Regular readers will have guessed that I'm going to draw some parallels with the economic perceptions. The parallels are, in fact, striking. Although on crime, the gap between public perception and data goes back much further. With respect to crime, the gap began to open up in the early 1990s. For reasons that are still much disputed, violent crime in America began a precipitous decline from around 1990 to around 2015. Yet many Americans consistently told pollsters that crime was rising. Were people accurately reporting their experience, whatever the data may have said? There's strong evidence to the contrary. For one thing, people were much more positive about crime trends in their own areas, which they could observe at first hand, than they were about the nation as a whole. Also, the era of falling crime corresponds pretty closely with the rise of gentrification, or of affluent Americans moving back into inner cities, which appears to have been linked to perceptions of reduced crime. Whatever they told pollsters, Americans voting with their feet, well, with their moving vans, were saying that cities were becoming safer. In short, Americans seem to have been feeling relatively safe themselves, but believed that bad things were happening to other people somewhere else. Now, there was a surge in violent crime, especially homicides, in 2020 and 2021, presumably linked to social disruptions caused by the COVID pandemic. Data for 2022 and partial data for 2023, suggest that this surge is now receding. But are Americans really feeling that improvement? Again, look at what people do, not what they say. 
foot traffic in major downtowns is down a lot since before the pandemic, but only on weekdays when many people are still working from home. Traffic on weekends when people go downtown for entertainment, shopping, and so on has more or less completely recovered, which is not what we'd see if people were terrified of visiting crime-ridden urban hellscapes. All of this sounds extremely familiar to anyone studying economic sentiment. In recent years, Americans have been extremely negative about the national economy, but much less so about their local economies. And everything we know about what Americans are doing, as opposed to what they tell pollsters, suggests that on average, they're feeling pretty good about their own situation. Consumer spending is strong, new business formation is high, and so on. One more item about watching what people do, not what they say. Moody's, a rating agency, has looked at surveys of businesses like the one conducted by the National Federation of Independent Businesses. As Moody's notes, those surveys include both hard indicators like hiring and capital expenditure plans and softer questions, for example, what people say they think about business outlook. Sure enough, the hard indicators, which tell us what businesses are actually doing, are consistent with a strong economy, while the soft indicators are what you'd expect in the midst of a severe recession. It's probably worth mentioning that the NFIB is very Republican. Open Secrets reports that GOP candidates have received over 99% of its contributions so far this election cycle. Journalists are frequently reluctant to acknowledge that public views of the economy are at odds with reality, lest they be called elitists citing fancy government statistics rather than listening to real people. And I keep seeing almost desperate efforts to find bad news in the economic data. But the fundamental puzzle isn't that people are unhappy despite favorable macroeconomic indicators. It is that Americans say that things are terrible, but behave as if they're doing pretty well. And I, at least, am inclined to place more weight on what people do than on what they say. Next, we have an editorial from Art Cullen of the Storm Lake Times Pilot. It's titled, Cheney's Temptation. Former Representative Liz Cheney got a bit full of herself when she suggested during a book tour interview with the Washington Post that she might like to mount a third-party or independent presidential campaign in order to prevent Donald Trump from getting back into the White House. Cheney formerly was a Republican representative from Wyoming until she got beat in a primary. Cheney became a woman without a party when she co-chaired a House committee that investigated the January 6th insurrection. She could have come to Iowa and sought the Republican nomination if she wanted to deny Trump the nomination. Or she didn't have to run, per se. She could have barnstormed Iowa ahead of the GOP candidates. She chose, instead, to write a valuable book. That's okay. Stay on the talk shows. Write op-eds. Go for it but she had her chance to run for either the Democratic or Republican nominations, neither of which she could win. She would join a queue of people who think they could run outside the two parties, Joe Manchin, Cornell West, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., 
Jill Stein, Larry Hogan. Have we forgotten anyone? Each would have the same effect of draining away support from President Joe Biden. The person who can deny Trump the presidency is Joe Biden, and not anybody else. Cheney knows this. She knows the real reason Al Gore lost to George W. Bush. He couldn't carry his home state of Tennessee. Cheney should spend these remaining weeks getting the message to Iowa Republicans that Donald Trump is not in their electoral interests. Her arguments are compelling and true. Cheney is a patriot who stood up for the democratic process. It cost her a House seat and made her persona non grata at the party her father helped to build. She remains credible to a large block of Republican voters who could benefit by hearing from her directly in Iowa. Her message should be, if Trump is the nominee, vote for Biden. It would be liberating for her just to blurt it out. This one was also printed in the Storm Lake Times pilot, titled, Woke Make Senator Ernst Choke. This written by Art Cullen. Senator Joni Ernst can work up one hankering hunger in her role as human scaffolding for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to make certain he does not fall over at Capitol press scrums. So last week, she chomped off a hunk of Iowa chop served by the Cattlemen's Association. Yes, Senator Chuck Grassley said so. And the world just tilted a bit on its axis on Iowa Day in D.C. And it got stuck in her throat. She started choking. Senator Rand Paul, Republican from Kentucky, adamant in his opposition to corn ethanol, put politics aside and sprang into action to perform the Heimlich maneuver. Ernst coughed up the pork and got them squealing with this line on social media after she came up for air. Quote, Can't help but choke on the woke policies Dems are forcing down our throats. Thanks, Rand Paul. Good one. Except that it might be bad form to compare the venerated Iowa chop to low-down Dems. This regal cut of excellence should rise above politics. And any Iowan should know that the cooks in D.C. or any place else outside Iowa have no clue how to prepare proper pork. Is this heaven? No. It's 801 Chop House in Des Moines. When in D.C., order the ribeye. It might cost a hundred bucks, but it can be consumed medium rare. Which raises that question again. Why are cowboys serving pork chops? I trust checkoff funds were not used to choke Ernst. Another question. What is woke? I don't know. I was woke until a pollster woke me up to the phrase about five years ago. I drive a hybrid plug-in. I think a gay person might have ridden in it, not sure, because the car does not have gaydar. It makes me woke, I guess. I looked it up in the interwebs. It sounds like the great blues singer Lead Belly coined the phrase in the 1938 song Scottsboro about nine black Alabama teens who were wrongfully accused of raping a white girl. Lead Belly advised young blacks to, quote, best stay woke, keep their eyes open, unquote. In 1860, a black youth group formed in Hartford, Connecticut, called the Wide Awakes to support Abe Lincoln and the Republican ticket. Woke became a political aphorism as other groups latched onto the word, 
and reintroduced it to the general culture sometime after 2000. Over the past decade, the right wing found woke to be a useful catch-all for fruits and nuts and other things lib, with its roots in racist code. If blacks came up with the colloquialism, let's make fun of it as hopelessly stupid and naive. It works every time. It is woke to think that police murdered George Floyd. It is woke to believe that carbon dioxide, methane, and other gases are contributing to a warming climate and extreme weather. It is woke to suggest that Washington and Wall Street worked hand-in-hand to rend independent pork producers and regional processors. It is woke to acknowledge that we depend on undocumented immigrants to produce pork. It is woke to think that Huckleberry Finn should not be banned from schools. It's hard to know what is being shoved down the senator's throat other than some overcooked, drug-infused pork. The woke Dems want more aid for Israel and Ukraine for bombs and bombers built by U.S. contractors so the nations can defend themselves. And Rockwell Collins makes a buck or two. Rand Paul is an obstacle to defending Ukraine and Israel and to developing American energy independence by trying to kill renewable fuels. The woke Biden administration has unsuccessfully attempted to pursue antitrust action in the food and tech industries, something Grassley has talked about since Moses was learning to read the Ten Commandments. Number 11, thou shalt not overcook an Iowa chop. In junior high school, it is woke to defend Social Security against aspirations by Nikki Haley to scotch it. It is woke to get a COVID booster shot, which I just did. One day, they will come to arrest me, when my eyes are closed, for asking why aren't the pork producers serving up the Iowa chops? What if the libs were posing as cattlemen to undermine the pork industry by choking a U.S. senator with shoe leather? Huh? What about that? The House Judiciary Committee should look into whether Hunter Biden had anything to do with this. This wokeness is getting out of control. They're stuffing it down our throats. Right there at Iowa Day. Cattlemen serving pork. Make America great again, or they might serve tofu if those woke get in their way. Cattlemen serving tofu? The thought makes me gag even in my wokeness. Now in college men's basketball, how UNI defended its home court against Prairie View. Story written by Ethan Petrick. Dateline Cedar Falls. Northern Iowa built an early lead and never let Prairie View A&M get within one possession the rest of the way in a 74-55 win on Tuesday. The Panthers jumped out to a 12-2 lead as all five starters scored in the first five minutes of action before building a 38-23 halftime lead. UNI outpaced Prairie View 36-32 in the second half to seal the 19-point win and improve to a 4-7 on the season. Nate Heiss scored in every conceivable way in the first half, from a dunk to a four-point play to a two of four from behind the arc, to seven of seven from the free throw line. Hess's 19-point performance in the first 
helped the Panthers build a 16-point advantage by the break. The junior guard from Minnesota scored 13 points in the final 7 minutes and 18 seconds of the half, including an individual 7-2 run, which took a 9-point UNI lead and turned it into a 12-point advantage. With two non-conference games remaining, a home date with Alcorn State on Sunday, and a road test against Northern Illinois next week, the Panthers have a chance to return to Valley play with momentum. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, December 13th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can access a recording of today's reading of the Courier or of the other newspapers around the state that we read. Just go to our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. <laughs>